Okay, so we just got done doing cross politic, and there was something that didn't make the cut of the book. Right. And you're like, I got to tell you what didn't make the cut of the book. And you started talking. I'm like, man, <laughs> I should be recording this. Okay, you got to start all the way back from the beginning. Okay. Okay. Um, in Ireland and a lot of places in like France, Northern Europe, and so on, they had these standing stones. In, in France, they call them menhirs. They're just standing stones in England, Scotland, Ireland. And these were put up actually before the Celtic people even migrated into these areas. We have no idea who put them there. Right. But when the Celts arrived, they used them as worship sites. Became, they became sites for pagan worship. Well, when the area becomes Christianized, they decide evidently they want to have their own standing stones. So on the island of Iona, they set up one of these, but it was a cross. Mm. and It was called the St. John's Cross. But the problem is that it wasn't structurally sound and the horizontal arms broke off. So they needed a way to kind of hold it all hold, together. Hold it together. Yeah. So that's the origin of the Celtic cross, where you have the cross with the circle. In it. Mm-hmm. But it's more than just bracing for the arms. Um, it turns out that um, if you take just the circle with the cross inside it, that's an ancient pagan symbol that was used all across Northern Europe. It was used by the Slavs, the Germans, uh, and the Celts as a symbolic representation of the universe. So what you've got is the top half is the heavens, the bottom half is the underworld, the horizontal line is Middle Earth, the world we live on, and the vertical line is the world tree, uh, Norse Yggdrasil, that ties everything together. Mm -hmm. The branches of the tree in the top arc represent celestial wisdom. Mm. The roots of the tree in the underworld represent ancestral wisdom. So you've got the sources of knowledge and you have the structure of the universe. Mm-hmm. But it's more than that. It's also a compass. So you have north on the bottom. It's flipped over from the way we do it. Uh, because in the northern hemisphere, the light comes from the south. So mm-hmm. the north is associated with darkness and therefore the underworld. So that means on your left, you've got east. On the top, you have south. On the right, you have west, and on the bottom, you have north. So it's a compass. Mm. But it's also a calendar. Um, to the left, you have spring, summer to the top, uh, fall to the right, and winter to the south. It's also a clock. Dawn at the left, noon, dusk, midnight. Mm. It's also your life, birth, youth, maturity, mm. old age as you go around the circle. So this represents all of time, all of space, all of knowledge. So when the monks on Iona decided to find a way of holding up the arms of the cross, they took that symbol and superimposed the cross of Christ over it. Mm. So what does that say? Wow. It says that Jesus is the Lord of space and time. He is the Logos, the source of all wisdom and all knowledge. And He rules over all these things from the cross. Mm. It's a complete statement of a biblical worldview that we would embrace in one symbol. Wow. Why did come that didn't make the book? Uh, I want to talk to the editor. Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's probably because it wasn't much about a specific person. Although I used the guy who carved one of the crosses at Monaster Boyce in Ireland. We've actually got a name attached to it. Um, I used him as the excuse to tell that story. Wow, that's good stuff, man. It, um, um, so what era would that be? That'd be in a medieval time? That oh, had that's, that? er, that's early Middle Ages. That's about the 6th century, roughly. Okay. I want to, we were, when we were talking, um, I have so much to ask you. Uh, if you want to have your beer, this is very free-flowing, so there's nothing mm-hmm. that stops this. If, whatever, say what you were say, make a joke, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um when we were, man, we talked about so much stuff last night, but I, the thing I really want to talk to you about is egalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were doing our Christmas show and somebody asked, said, hey, what do you think the most important thing facing the church is or, or, or facing our Christian culture or facing culture or our church? And I said, hands down, I think egalitarianism is probably the one of the, the most important things that we are facing in our society. Um, and so I, as I want to talk to you a little bit about egalitarianism, kind of the face of it what it does, um, how to fight against it, stuff like that. But I want to ask you first, when we were talking about critical race theory on cross politic, um, I wanted to know, do you think that the medievals would, would even tolerate 
or be fooled by any such thought of critical theory? No. I, I, I don't think they'd have. In the slightest. I mean. It, yeah. They, 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 they'd, they'd look at you like you were crazy. Interesting. Um, yeah. Because they understood that hierarchy is built into the nature of the universe. Oh, you already went to egalitarianism. You didn't even play with that one. Okay. All right. Well, well but if hierarchy is built into the nature of the universe, it is built into the nature of society as well. Um, it is fundamental. I mean, God is over all things. All other things are under him. Um, and so to the medieval mind, that points to the nature of, um, of all kinds of things. You know, following Paul, uh, uh, you know, a man is the head of a woman, as Christ is the head of man, as God is the head of Christ. You know, there, there is a, a hierarchy that is assumed in Scripture, and the medieval saw it reflected in the entire universe. There are... There are beings, there are some beings that are higher on the scale than others. People are above animals. Animals are above plants. Plants are above dirt. Mm. You know, there, it, this, this idea of hierarchy is built into the nature of reality. And so critical theory with this idea that all hierarchy is evil and oppressive, uh, they'd have rejected it. They'd have recognized that there is some hierarchy that is evil and oppressive, but it's not hierarchy itself that's the problem. It's the abuse of it. So this is a complete reordering of everything down to the soil. When you start talking about hierarchy, you're not just talking about um, in relationships to each other, man and woman or, or people who have offices um, or you're talking about down to the very soil right. foundation. It, 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 it the, the medieval mind saw hierarchy and I would argue biblically, they saw hierarchy as built into the very fabric of the universe. And because it is part of the nature of the universe that God has created, it is part of the nature of human society. What makes us different, though, than them? So, uh, who is us and them? Us, so us what makes today the modern the, the modern mind, the mm-hmm. modern person, uh, even Christian would say, "Well, I I believe that, mm-hmm. right? I, I believe there's a hierarchy there, but we're not. We wouldn't have a medieval mind. So, yeah. Well, there are a whole lot of other things that that connect into this in the middle ages that we've fundamentally rejected. Mm. Um, And a lot of that is a result of things that happened in the early modern period, the 1600s, mostly uh, into the 1700s. There are a number of changes in the way that we see the world and we think that, um, that really kind of plays havoc with, Mm -hmm. um, with other parts of the entire medieval worldview. Um, So for example, um, you get uh, with, with Bacon and the, the um, empirical scientific method stuff, you begin to break down the idea of, uh, well, it's ultimately— Oh, this up, is going to get deep. It, okay, it, go it, ahead. It, Take yeah, your time. we got time. It, it ultimately gets into a form of, of philosophy called nominalism. Okay. Um, what nominalism says is that you know, whenever we have a category, let's say dogs— the word dog is just a name. It doesn't have any ontological reality. It doesn't have any being to it. A dog, you know, when we talk about dogs, it's a, it's a term of convenience that we use to describe a whole bunch of things that are similar. Mm. Excuse me. That's not correct. It describes a whole bunch of things that have similarities. Mm. Because if you say they are similar, you're suggesting there's something that actually, truly unites all of them. Instead, what you have are a, a bunch of individual atomized things that have a bunch of, of, of things that are similar between them. So we use the word dog as a convenience to describe the whole lot of them. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm tracking with you. Yeah. So that, that ends up being one of the things that comes out of Bacon and the scientific method. They, they really run in that direction. It doesn't necessarily have to lead there. But that's where it does. It sounds like it goes right to the pronoun fight that we're in right now. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, in a, in a weird way, I hadn't yeah. thought of that. But in a weird way, yeah, you can you can get there from here. Right. Um, yeah, real quick. I mean, right. calling a she a he, mm-hmm. all we're doing is, you know. Well, you, even more the made up pronouns. Right, right, uh, right, Be- right. Because there is no, Cis, yeah. there is no intrinsic maleness or femaleness right it's it's all arbitrary and each individual is an individual and thus there's no single category that unites all of them 
and male and female is nothing more than a linguistic convention that we use for convenience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it it can lead very directly to that kind of uh, pronoun nonsense. But this is so. Go. I didn't. I interrupted you, but you're saying that mm-hmm. start around the the modern. Yeah, in in the 17th century, you begin developing, and and one, once you go there, it ends up being corrosive to a whole lot of things in the medieval consensus. There was some nominalism among the Franciscans in the 14th, 15th century, um, but the way it develops with the scientific method and the parallel growth of rationalism, um, it ends up really breaking down a whole lot of the medieval consensus, so much so that we would not recognize, you know, a medieval thinker is very hard for us to really access, to really understand, because it is so foreign to our way of thinking. It's like, uh, the more I've been understanding this, and the more I've been understanding uh, medievals, I'm realizing that I feel like I, to understand them, I have to have a completely different world. Think of the world completely different. Absolutely. Like they're on another planet, the way they think about things versus the way I think about things. And, um, and it takes time to try to resurrect that. So then, you know, as you're seeing, as you're seeing the so critical race theory wouldn't have, um, it wouldn't have had any purchase there. Critical, I mean, just critical theory. Critical theory. Is, so when you define critical theory, mm-hmm. define. So how do okay. you? Okay, Crit- critical theory. Uh, there, there are a lot of different dimensions to it, but at its core, critical theory believes that society is built up of some people who have power, who have gotten their power by taking it away from people who don't have it now. In other words, it's a fundamentally oppressive system. The people who have power got power by abusively taking it away from other people. So when it sees a hierarchy, it says the only reason that person is in office is because they abuse someone else to get right. it. It is well, antithesis to hierarchy. Right. In every way. The, the only, you know, and, and further, the, the, everything is a zero-sum game. So there's only a certain amount of power in society. If somebody has some power, they have to have deprived someone else of it because it's a zero-sum game. It always has to even right, out right. the total amount of power. Now, the interesting thing about that is the zero-sum game gets applied sort of systematically. So it's applied also to questions of moral authority or virtue. Um, mm. Since taking power away from someone is an evil act, you lose moral authority. But it's a zero-sum game. If you lose moral authority, the victims gain it. Mm. So if you are in an oppressed class, you have a kind of moral authority that you don't if you're an oppressor. This goes right back to what we were talking about, where the you said the order of dirt, uh, some mm-hmm. uh, beans are, are higher, higher than others. Than others. Mm-hmm. Well, and then so like a plant, a dog, and then a human, mm-hmm. right? Well, this is flipping all of that now. Right. And notice, I, I would argue environmentalism is a species of critical theory, the radical environmentalist. There's a proper kind of Christian environmentalism. I'm not talking That's about dominionism. that. That's dominionism. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But, but the, the radical environmentalists will argue things like, the world would be better off if human beings weren't here <laughs> or if we greatly reduced human population because what we are doing is oppressing the world. We are oppressing mm. all the other species and therefore what we have to do is fight for the rights of these other species by taking power away from people and properly redistributing it to these Things that are underneath us, whatever they may be, plants, animals, insects, what have you. With, I know I'm bouncing here and I'll get mm-hmm. back, but with AI becoming so popular and I feel like we're going to enter age of the Terminator pretty soon. But if that's the way that people are looking at the environment and the, the structure of things, the order of creation, the new order that they have by their new cosmology AI and robots pretty soon are going to be the new police or guardians of creation. Dominion has to switch to protect it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I you're studying where, AI stuff, right? where where AI is going is kind of up in the air. I but I find it disturbing that they are already making um, robotic uh, weapon systems that are are sort of self firing. Combine that with AI. Yeah. And then look at some of the answers that you get through chat box or whatever it's called. Chat, chat GPT or chat something GPT, like that. Chat GPT, yeah. yeah. 
look at some of the answers you're getting there, and it doesn't take long to prompt the thing into talking about killing people. You can act, it actually really? will do that. Um, and you, you find that uh, you know it, the way the programmers have it set up, it has a bias toward the left. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens if you put AI into an automated weapon system? Mm-hmm. With that type um, so, of worldview, so that yeah. so that it, ha- it it has to discern whether someone is an enemy, uh, an enemy combatant, or not, um, and to determine whether or not it's going to shoot them because it's going to have its own chain, right? Right, and and so how so what what happens when you do that? Um, depending on the data that it is drawing from, it can reach. Rather, well, I don't want to talk about it reaching conclusions, but its algorithms can point it in some very bad directions very quickly. I mean, we're we're not talking, you know, Terminator stuff exactly. Here, we're getting there, though, man. But but um, yeah, I mean, th- these are these are very real possibilities. Well, I mean, yeah, no, I, I'm just thinking about the fact, like, we're not talking yeah. Terminator stuff yet. But if you can in Canada with the technology they have right now, well, just with the power they have to freeze bank accounts, mm-hmm. um, you know, well, based we, off. Yeah. Wait, wait till they create a central bank digital currency and use it to replace cash. Yeah. What, what that will mean is the government will know every penny you spend. Um, the, yeah. And it also becomes impossible, for example, to tip a busker mm. because there's no cash. What are you going to do? Right, right. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> they won't be able to hide it anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, there, yeah, there is that. So, okay, I want to go back. So then the the... Because after we, you know, we did the documentary with founders and I had you come on and talk about critical theory, critical race theory. One of the things that happened after that was critical theory exploded into the field and everybody all of a sudden started talking about it's the new way to write a book and make some money. Okay. But I started noticing that people. And by the way, I should note that I have been slow to the party multiple times. This is one of them. <laughs> well, you got a new book coming out that's going to deal with that at some point, right? Uh, how to... Um, Live in the new Babylon. Flourishing in the new Flourishing Babylon. Flourishing in the new Babylon. But one of the things that I've noticed while everybody's talking about critical theory, no one's talking, no one's dissecting it with the ability to actually fight against it. Mm-hmm. And if it's an antithesis to hierarchy, the only way to really fight against critical theory is to have a very strong hierarchical understanding of the created order. I think that that's true. Yeah. Um, I think that there's an intermediate step, though. Okay. Uh, the intermediate step is that the reason why critical theory gains traction, the reason why it seems plausible, particularly in issues of race, mm. less true with the sexual stuff, but particularly in issues of race, is the fact of the matter is that there are situations that come up where it looks like and sometimes is, in fact, uh, racial bias. Yeah. You know, my, my standard example is driving while black. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know any young black man who hasn't had that experience. Right. And, you know, so, you know, you can talk about all the stats of police killings and stuff like that and point out that, you know, it's really a very minuscule number of people that police kill and they're more likely actually to shoot whites than blacks and right. all that kind of thing. But that doesn't gain any traction because the black guy in the community has had the experience of being pulled over and hassled by the cops so much he has an automatic distrust of them so that when George Floyd happens— Everybody believes that it's open season on blacks, even though, like I said, the, the facts don't really point in that direction. But the emotional reaction is still there. Right. Okay. It so, helps them communicate something about the world that, that makes sense to them. Right. So how do you stop that? How do you cut that short? Well, there are two ways of doing it. If you are thinking about ending white privilege, what you do is you start pulling the whites over the same way you pull the blacks over. Mm-hmm. However, if you think about it not in terms of white privilege but in terms of black disadvantage, you have an alternative approach, which says stop pulling blacks over. <laughs> you know, don't pull people over for driving while black. I don't want white people to get pulled over as much as I get pulled over. <laughs> That's not, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, so, so the obvious solution is to stop pulling people over for driving while black. Sure. That is a positive solution that we can, we can propose because it's not a zero-sum game. But I don't think that that's uh, but well, that that's just an illustration. I got but, you. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But what we can do is look at the genuine issues of racial bias or what have you, 
and come up with better solutions. But, but I don't know. That's if we, the intermediate step. But here, here's can I push back a little bit on okay, the intermediate sure. step? Because I don't think you can have an intermediate step with people who don't share a cosmology with you. I think that people who have a, a, a cosmology that would pre, that would present that step, um, the ones who are like, that's not a reality in the, the cos, in the world that I exist in. Mm-hmm. Right. Or if we get there, the things that you have to compromise to be able to create that type of reality would make the person who has a Christian cosmology or at least closer to one, a medieval mind, um, give up so much <laughs> that they're leaning so heavily uh, on the left side just to be able to try and come to some sort of terms on not pulling everybody over. Yeah. You, see, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Does that make sense? In in some areas, I think that's true. In driving while black, I don't think it is. But yeah. But in, I, in some in some areas, that's true. Um, um, because there's a, there's a flaw in the concept right. anyway. Right. right. Because a, because when they start with the worldview that everything yes. is built around oppression, you, but but the question is, how many true believers are there? We got a lot. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, true believers in critical theory. We're we're in a state, I think, where I think, John John Stone Street says that what we're in is a critical theory mood, 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 and I I think he's on to something there. I I don't think that we have that many people who actually understand critical theory well no, enough no. to actually be true believers in that sense. But what <clears throat> we can do maybe is change the discussion by changing some of the facts on the ground to get people to start questioning the mood. I think that the the world that the people believe that they live in, critical theory, perfectly resembles that reality. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a more of a, a a world consistent with critical theory, even though they might not know what it is, right? Mm-hmm. So their mood is actually more like, I didn't know what the word was called, but that is actually the word that perfectly describes the reality that I think I live in, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I wonder. So, if, so my point is, start changing the reality. Okay. So then, but and this is where I'm coming to terms because I'm realizing, even in my own Christian wall, Christian reality, how um, I don't want to say egalitarian, but maybe that's the right. When I hear things, I was going through. I, I was talking to Jason Farley about this. I, when I go to Westminster Confession of Faith and I'm reading the Fifth Commandment uh, and the uh, responsibilities of the obedience to the Fifth Commandment, as well as the um, I can't remember the negative side. Don't mm. the, there's mm. a positive and negative to each one of the commandments that the Westminster Confession of right. Faith gives out in the larger catechism. And one of the things that it says is starts breaking out fifth commandment: superiors, inferiors, and subordinates. And as soon as I read superiors, I was like, I don't like that word. Mm. I, I, it made me uncomfortable immediately. Right. right? And right. so, but and that's in a person who's reformed, who's Presbyterian, you know, CRA, mm-hmm. out the whole nine. And even hearing hierarchy like that, I don't even like those kind of terms with that. And it starts to say, well, that's because I've been bathed in this um, anti-hierarchical view right. of the world. And, I, and I'm realizing that's why even critical theory, when I'm watching Republicans right now, they're operating with a critical theory light. Right. Yeah, but I they're not operating right. with a another cosmology that's set up to change the complete structure. They're just working with all the same presuppositions just with their side of critical theory. Yeah, I, I think that that's true. I think that, that we are in a world that is dominated formally or informally by critical theory, whether you call it a mood or a worldview or anything else. Yeah. It, it's there. The cosmology of it, right? Right. It, it is there. And, you know, so – in practical terms, um, I like said, I you know, I, I don't know exactly how one changes a person's cosmology. I just really don't know how to do that. Mm. Uh, which is why I start with small practical steps on the ground. Mm-hmm. Outlaw, you know, make make it mandatory that police departments don't have a policy of pulling over people because they're the wrong color in the wrong neighborhood. See, I- yeah, I like that. I mean, you know, that, 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 I would say that that is a practical step that you can take to start alleviating some of the tensions that make critical theory attractive. That's, that's where I'm going with this. Because, like mm. I said, I really don't know how you change someone's worldview or their cosmology. It doesn't happen easily. And I would suggest that actually, you know, I've, I've said over and over again, and probably ripped this off of someone else. Uh, worldviews are caught, not taught. Mm. 
So I believe that. So it's not a matter of just some sort of teaching people, you know, this, this is the way things work. They've got to catch it from somewhere. And where are they going to catch it from? Well, well we don't, yeah, yeah, we don't and, have it. You know, and the, the, the way you catch a worldview, I think, is by your behavior. It, it's interesting. We live from the inside out. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. heart, soul, mind, and strength in that order. But I think change comes in the other direction. I think our actions affect our thinking, which affect our soul, which affect our heart. It works inward. And I, so I, I, I think you actually behave your way into new worldviews or obey your way into new worldviews. So it's, it's a sanctification process. Right. Directly. Right. So, and, and of course, you know, you have to, this, is, this is from a purely human perspective. It's always the Holy Spirit at work. We've got to keep, keep track of that. But, so can I ask you, you said that it was um, nominalism. That mm-hmm. changed inside the turn of the it's seven, one, one of the things. 17th century. Okay, nominalism. One of the, but if you have such a strong medieval mind, why does nominalism come and capture that medieval mind, among well, other things? Yeah, well, the, the Franciscans actually originally developed nominalism in the 14th century as a way of solving some of the problems that they were facing. Okay, so I'm not going to get into that. Okay. But in the early modern period, the reason why it makes a resurgence is— we're in a world that is increasingly rebelling against some of the more superstitious elements of the medieval mind because there was also a lot of superstition. Sure. And so this is, this is why rationalism begins growing. This is why science begins growing. During the Renaissance, they believed that much of the things that happened in the universe that we describe using science, they believe were, was caused by occult forces, Occult being the Latin word for hidden. There are hidden forces in the universe, uh, essentially magic, and that's what causes things to happen. You know, that was their their approach to physics. As people were increasingly rejecting this sort of magical view of the way the universe operates, and were looking for rational explanations, causes, laws, things like that. You you see the rise of science. You see the rise of Descartes and rationalism and things like that. All of this is, is, um, is a way of turning away from some of these superstitious ideas that people just – that no longer really felt real to people. Mm. And once you begin going in that direction, you know, there, there, I mean, Descartes' philosophy doesn't really go very far. It's popular in France, but it, you know, it doesn't stick around. But the, the impact of it indirectly in terms of an emphasis on rationalism does hang around. Mm-hmm. Um, Bacon's empirical work in, in the sciences, that does stick around. These things begin to replace what they began increasingly to view as medieval superstition. And that's why they start turning away from it. It's the, the, the growth of the explanatory power of the sciences. It's the growth of um, a, a desire for a more rational way of understanding the world. It's a whole bunch of things like that. Um, some of it indirectly is actually even connected with some of the ideas that emerged during the Reformation. Mm. So when you have... Uh, like, uh, yeah, I'm okay, sorry, go ahead. The, you know, simple example. Um, the metaphor was God has two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, we can talk general revelation and special revelation. Sure. When you start insisting on sola scriptura and examining the original text, looking at the Greek and the Hebrew and all of that, um, to develop your theological ideas, and that's the sole source of your theological ideas, the next step is to say, why don't we apply that to general revelation too? Let's start studying it in its original languages, as it were, looking at the world as it is. Let's study it, let's try to understand it, and approach it in those terms, rather than using some of the philosophical categories and things like that that we used to use. So sola scriptura has as its counterpart sola natura. In nature alone, by nature alone. By nature alone. Yeah. So, so what you see, now they, nobody used that terminology, that's mine. But, but what you see happening then is it begins to separate the invisible world from the visible, mm. which, which is actually biblical and creedal terminology rather than physical and spiritual. It begins to draw a dividing line between the two, and once you do that, it emerges ultimately in what Nancy Percy refers to, the fact-value distinction. 
The only things that qualify as facts are things that are empirically observable or logically necessary. So you've got both reason and empiricism together. Everything else moves into the realm of faith or taste or opinion or something like that. And so religion is cut off from the natural world. Morality is cut off from the natural world. Aesthetics is cut off from the natural world. Because all of these are, are these what Francis Schaeffer called upper story stuff that doesn't affect the lower story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was the name of that book? Oh, I think that was in Escape from Reason. Escape from Reason, yes. Yeah. I found that book. I'm like, this is what's going on right now. Yeah. Uh, so then um, it, when would you – man, so then when would you – there's so much there. When would you mark the time that you think this is the last hurrah of the medieval mind? This is when it completely sunsetted. It's done. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably in place in the 17th century, uh, 1600s. But it takes until the 1800s for the burial. And what do you mark the burial as? The word science. The Latin scantia, from which we get the word science, simply means any field of knowledge that has a defined methodology for, for learning it. Uh, thus, theology is a science mm-hmm, okay. mm-hmm. in the original meaning. When you get to the 19th century, the word science gets limited. It gets shut down to just the things that we can study using the scientific method. Mm. At that point, what you're saying is the only thing that really qualifies as knowledge is stuff that's scientific, mm-hmm. scientifically verifiable. Things that I can run tests on. Right. Tangible items. Right. Yeah. That's the point at which there is nothing left of, of the medieval worldview. So that so it, I mean, it's worth noting that if you look at the transactions of the Royal Philosophical Society, they called it Philosophical Society. It was actually arguably a scientific society, but they didn't think of science the way we do. They thought of it as natural philosophy. They thought of it, thought of it as a branch of philosophy. But if you look at the transactions of the Royal Philosophical Society, what you'll find is that there are a lot of examples of people who do scientific studies, and they draw their scientific conclusions, what we would call scientific. They draw their conclusions about the physical world and all of that. But then they go beyond that to start talking about the moral and spiritual implications of what they just learned from the natural world. Mm. And they're continuing Mm. to do this until the late 18th century, until the late 1700s. That is very much a tie to the medieval world where you have the sense that the visible and invisible worlds are integrated. Yeah. It completely disintegrates in the early 19th century. And so you got, what? that's when you get evolution rising at that point then too, don't you? Yeah, ev- evolution is going to come up in the 1830s, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, and prior to that, you know, the big question is, how do you explain the universe? Where does the universe come from? And the, it doesn't, and, the sec- yeah. and the secondary question is, how, what is the difference between man and animal? Uh, you explain the. <laughs> We're reordering the hierarchy right, right now. So what you do is you say the universe. You know, if you if you argue that the universe is eternal, it eliminates the need for God to create it. So what you're seeing in the mm. early 19th century is an argument that the universe is in fact eternal. Mm. Thus, we don't need a creator. And then when Darwin comes along, human distinctive is, is human distinction is explained away. We're just another animal, just evolved in some peculiar ways. There's actually, there's not much difference between us and a flower and the dirt, and right. it's all... Yeah. And by the way, Darwin, although he himself didn't like this, uh, understood that part of the implications of what he was saying, you know, um, survival of the fittest occurs within a species, not between species. Mm. It's not about... I, we human beings are out competing, you know, elephants or anything like that. It's one group of human beings are out competing another group of human beings because that's how evolution occurs. It occurs within a species. Darwin understood the implications of this. He said in The Descent of Man that it is inevitable that the civilized races, by which he meant the Europeans, would eventually exterminate the savage races, by which he meant everybody else. Right. He understood that that is the logical consequence of Darwinism. He didn't necessarily like it. He didn't necessarily think this was a good thing. But he said, look, if this theory is right, this is where it goes. And that immediately leads you to social Darwinism. And in an interesting way, it also ends up shaping Marx. 
Explain. Well, competition. Ah, right, right, right. But that would so it, he Mar- Marx modifies it, but he is very much operating in a Darwinian framework. Um, in his case, the competition isn't you know, isn't the same as it is in Darwin, but it's the haves versus the have-nots. Mm. You know, it, it 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 that that is actually tied into Darwinian thinking. That competition. Well, and there goes a. Um, one of the things that you see in Ephesians um, is the hierarchical structure. Uh, you see husband loves your wives, wives submit to your husbands, children obey your parents, slaves obey your masters, masters be good to your slaves, right? So you parents have a master. Don't exasperate your children. Right, right, right. You have, so then. That was my son's favorite verse. <laughs> Fathers don't exasperate your sons. And yeah. and was it used properly? <laughs> oh, No. No, I, I taught him well. He, he did not use it properly. No, no. Um, now, by the way, the interesting thing there that is really important that we miss is that there were household codes in the ancient world. That's what you call these. Mm-hmm. In all of the household codes, they always talk about the responsibility of inferiors to superiors, never superiors to inferiors. Mm. In Paul, you get reciprocal responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Because that's actually that's nature. That is that is utterly groundbreaking. That is that is remarkable. Nobody had ever done that before, because they didn't believe that superiors had the kind of responsibility to their subordinates. Let's use subordinate rather than inferior. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why? See, I, I don't. I'm trying to get comfortable using the word inferior. Okay, we can use the word inferior <laughs> if you like. Well, only reason I, because I think it it hits a nerve where we when we hear inferior, we only can think of it. Because of the way we structure things, egalitarianism does not have poetry, right? Egalitarianism is, um, it is flat. It's either or. So when we hear the word inferior, the only thing we can think of is the ontological realities of that person and not necessarily some of the economic realities, right? Mm-hmm. right. Well, you know, the, the way to think about this, I think, is to, to recognize that there is a distinction between ontological reality and hierarchy. They, the two of them are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Without wanting to get into all the Trinitarian debate, it's worth noting that the second person of the Trinity is ontologically equal to the Father, mm-hmm. that, that there is no distinction in that way. And yet, at least during the Incarnation, the second person of the Trinity was subordinate to the Father. They're ontologically equal, but there's a clear subordination, right? At least during the incarnation. I'm not going to get into eternal subordination. Sure, I, sure, I, sure, that, sure, that, sure. That, that gets us into the weeds. Yeah, but but there's no question that when Jesus was alive, he was submitting completely to the Father as well. He was subordinate there, but he's ontologically equal, right? And the fact that you can have both of those in place this is one of the marvels of the Trinity. The fact that you can have both of those in place should tell us that it is equally possible to have both of those in place in our world because the God who created this world, you know, that was his nature. Left his fingerprints all throughout. Exactly. I think Jason Farley, who usually is on the show, will say something like the world is the type of place that is an overflowing reality of triune love. Right. Right. So you can't get anywhere in this world without that Trinity being printed everywhere. Right. That love and of the Trinity printed everywhere. Right. Yeah. And, but it does not exclude hierarchy. That's right. the thing. Right. Um, ontological equality does not mean egalitarian. That's right. That's right. Because you can have hierarchy in the midst of ontological equality. So I want to, I want to take that and I want to push a little bit on what you said about, um, not, by, no, by the way, go ahead. Uh, you can make an argument that one of the reasons why egalitarianism is a big thing right now is the long-term impact of critical theory, D- because what that says is all hierarchy is evil, right? And yep. therefore, we must eliminate hierarchy. We must, you know, we we can't have uh, anything that men anything men can do, women should also be able to do, because otherwise, we're oppressing women. Yeah. Yeah, right. So do you think that that um communist so I've you don't find critical theory earlier than what the mid to late seventies, something around there. Well that, for, formal critical theory begins a little bit earlier than that with the the Frankfurt school. Okay, fair As enough. As a matter of fact, um was it Hor- now it wasn't Horkheimer. 
who was one of the early figures in the Frankfurt School, it might, might have been Horkheimer, uh, who coined the term critical theory. Okay. You know, so that it, it actually comes out of that, which is they, they would argue that they weren't Marxists, but fundamentally they were neo-Marxists. I'm thinking criminal, critical race theory. Yeah. It comes okay. from that. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, yeah. you're right. I, I, I'll give you that. So then you can directly, this is a mechanism that works particularly inside of communism, right? Yes. Uh, ultimately, the goal of communism is universal egalitarianism. <laughs> that's, that, that's what they, that's their claim. That what they're working toward is creating a world of where everyone is completely equal. Um, all class distinctions are abolished. All distinctions of any form are abolished. And that's it. You know, so it is fundamentally anti-hierarchical, though in practice, communist societies are horrendously hierarchical. Right. That somebody's going to be on the top. Right. Yeah. They just want to. So, so I was reading, um, I think I was reading Rothbard on this. Murray Rothbard would basically said egalitarianism doesn't really exist. It's just a way of changing who gets to be on top. Right? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of truth there. Yeah. You know, it's hard to argue that Xi Jinping is the is equal to a peasant in one of the backwater provinces. That's right. That's right. You know, and if you're really talking about universal egalitarianism, you'd have to say that they were. Yeah. So do you so I don't think people um people don't see the connection between communism um i think people will a- avoid the idea of critical theory and then uh, or not like it and then embrace some form of communism at the same time why don't those, or vice versa uh, Embrace communism and and hate be opposed to critical race theory. Well, usually they'll reject the term communist, but still embrace critical theory. Right, that's what we see more often. Okay, here here is your bottom line: any worldview that says that the very nature of society is opposition between one group versus another has its roots in Marxism. Marxism, every one of them. Okay, so any time. You see it as haves versus have-nots in any sense of the word. You've got roots in Marxism. It's as simple as that. That's where these ideas come from. Mm. You know, if it's men versus women in feminism, the root was Marxism. You find that actually, I believe, in Marx, but certainly in some of his early followers. If it's, um, if it's race, um, that was an adaptation of Marxism. All critical theory grows out of Marxism. I mean, it's, you know, the, the roots are there. So then when you look at the radical agenda in the, the green movement, in the, um, uh, the climate change, that whole movement, we're looking at a communist movement. We're looking at a, a, a Marxist movement ultimately, right? Right. And in that case, it's a little bit different. It's, okay. it's not the, the haves versus have-nots in exactly the same sense. But you'll notice what it is. It's against industrial capitalism. So it's in many ways a throwback to the earliest forms of Marxism, which were against capitalism. You know, it is it it's just that in a new guise. So can I, I, I as we were talking, I was thinking about what you said, and you said, "Hey, I don't know how to trans a, a worldview is caught rather than taught." Right. Um, but I know you like stories. I know that, and and but I also know that so. J.R. Token, uh, uh, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I've been learning is the fact that he loved hierarchy. And because he loved hierarchy, he wrote Lord of the Rings. And it, the more and more I, I um, am studying kind of the things that maybe has kept America from tipping over and losing its whole mind has been the fact that some of these storytellers have kept a, a sane people, have kept the insane people from going completely far-fetched insane insane right um even though they don't get token right they're trying right they're trying yeah. and, and, and they typically pick up accurately some pieces of it groping in the dark right, right. <laughs> like they'll find you're like, oh that was pretty good and they don't know why though mm-hmm. right um and so but i think that if one of the ways maybe to help get this hierarchical structure right even deal with critical theory is to try and communicate through things that are beautiful in stories. You know, Lewis does this, right? Right. right. I, I think that imagination is really the key here. This, yeah. 
Um, you, yeah. you have to find a way of engaging people's imagination that will that will capture their hearts too. That I think is is probably the best route in. Um, I, I just read a book by Malcolm Geit. Uh, Geit is a, uh, a poet and a theologian, and he talked about imagination as being the thing that unites reason and intuition. Mm. It's not exactly the way he puts it, but that that's pretty close to it. And it's the thing that allows you to see heaven in earthly things and earthly things in heaven. It, it, it ties the two together. Um, and so he uses Jesus's parables as an example and a number of other things of that sort. Um, I think he's really on to something. The, the entire, the, the book, uh, it's called Lifting the Veil, I found really intriguing. Um, and I think that, that that it may be, you know, I mean, I've argued for some practical steps we could take, but stories, I think, are critical. Art is critical. Mm. Um, music is critical. Poetry is critical if people would actually read it. Um, because all of these things provide an opportunity to get a more coherent, unified vision of the visible and invisible. And that's, what, and that's really what we're talking about. And that's the, the key to picking up, uh, again, what was best in the medieval mind. Mm. We're going to have to re- resurrect the, the real, a better understanding of the Lord's table. Start working with the symbols that right. God has given us, specifically through the church, um, and start seeing that bleed out into everything else. Because until we start realizing that that is what the world is, like that's the type of world that we live in. Right. Right. Yeah. That in the baptism, our own sacraments, we have to take those. Um, yeah, I, th- I think one one of the things that um, I've been really thinking about a lot lately is that, okay, baptism and the Lord's Supper are the only sacraments, but the world itself is sacramental. Yeah, absolutely. That is to say, it points beyond itself to deeper realities, to spiritual realities, and so on, because the Logos who made the world is also the Logos who became incarnate in the world and who used the world to illustrate spiritual truth in the parables, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, when you read in Scripture that um, you know, the, ju- your justice is like the mountains of God, okay, mountains are supposed to remind ourselves of God's justice. Mm. We can see... Th- the, you know, we think, of, we think of that as an analogy. The guy's grabbing something in this world to describe God's justice. I don't think that's right. I think that the things in this world are reflections or pictures that God has given us of his justice. The justice is primary. The mountains are secondary. Mm-mm. We see the mountains, and from the mountains, we can understand something about the nature of God's justice. Like what? Well, when you think of a mountain, what comes to mind when you look at a mountain? Massive. Massive. Yeah. Solid. Yeah. Un- unyielding, unchanging. Right. Um, power. Mm-hmm. All of those things are, are things that the mountains themselves, I think, can convey. Solidity, mm. all of those kinds of things. Um, the, the, we question, that, we question is, where is God's justice in this world? God's justice is like the mountains. It's here. We may not see it, we may not understand it, but it's here. Mm. You know, so so there are things like that throughout scripture where where things in this world become analogies of spiritual reality. The spiritual reality is what's primary. The things of this world are pictures of it that the logos himself when the world was when it when through him the world was created, these are things that he embedded in the world to give us the opportunity to see beyond the world into something more. Everything in the world, in this sense, can be a symbol. Mm. can point beyond itself to deeper realities of truth. Man, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Um, And that, by the way, is also one of the keys to the medieval mind. That's what I was going to— They saw the world that way. Yeah. So we don't even have— So I think I can hear all my friends who don't like typology or who are— who question typology because it's not as a uh, special revelation. It's not as specific. Um, they look at that and they're like, man, but then you can just go off the rails with that. And 
and completely missed the point. And so, and nobody has gone off the rails in their biblical exegesis and completely missed the point. Okay, fair enough. Never mind. Okay, okay. I, 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 I'd like to, I'd like to point out to those guys that if you take your you know historical literal interpretation of scripture as taught in most evangelical seminaries. If the Apostle Paul submitted the book of Galatians as an exegetical paper, he'd fail. Mm. The whole Hagar thing? Are you kidding me? Mm. Hagar is Hagar. She's not, she, she's not Mount Sinai. Mm. You'd fail. Paul himself, and I would argue other scriptural authors, but Paul, especially in Galatians, does not read scripture the way we do. He sees in Scripture something more than just the literal. And I think we limit ourselves too much when we say we need to only read according to the historical, grammatical, literal you know, in interpretation and ignore typology. Paul doesn't. Well, then how do you start learning how to do typology in a um, in a exegetical way, not an eisegesis way. You read the church fathers huh. because that's what they do. And there's uh, my, my pastor, who's, who's a brilliant guy, um, a shout out to Peter Wallace if you ever actually listen to this. Um, he worked with a couple of other theologians, worked with their material, and he's come up with a, a, uh, a diagram that he uses that shows how all of these different things connect together. Um, and it's actually very simple. It's basically a rectangle with an X on the inside of it. We started and, out like this, and we going in. Yeah, we're going back. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, w- w- without drawing it out and explaining it, which I can't do on audio, it's um, it's uh, it's difficult to actually explain it. But it involves typology. It involves allegory. It involves literal reading. It involves um, salvation historical reading. All of these kinds of things. Um, and when you actually read the church fathers with this structure in mind, you can see what they're doing. Because mm. that, that's exactly how th- what they're doing. They don't spell it out the way he did, but that y- you can say, "All right, this is this line, this is this line, and so on." In, in your diagram, um, I'm just moving a little bit because I want to value your time. I know you got to run here, but I want to know when you we were talking the other day, and you said that Homer, Homer's readings mm-hmm. were essential in the old world. Why? Well, to, for 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 a character, you said the, the Greeks believed that that reading that studying Homer, actually memorizing Homer, was essential for character development. Memorizing Homer, yeah. I mean, oh I, I, I ran into um, one account of somebody who said, "Yeah, my father told me that I needed to memorize Homer because it would make me a better person." And so this guy had memorized the complete Iliad and Odyssey. Oh wow! Was he a yeah. better person? Well, I haven't met him, so I don't know. But, but okay, why is that? Yeah, um, Homer is Homer is an intensely interesting set of of studies of character and of action, um, how people act, how they respond uh, to the circumstances that they're in. All of these things provide illustrations or, or models of of proper behavior or improper behavior, character, all of those kinds of things. Further, although the Greeks are obviously the the main characters in this, we get pictures of the Trojans. Mm. And in many ways, the Trojans come off as being more noble than the Greeks. Mm. Hector is arguably the single most admirable person. I mean, I don't think it's arguable. I think he's the single most admirable person in the poem. Yet he's the Trojan hero that Achilles kills. Mm. Um. You know, there there is. You, you have to. Now you just spoiled it for me. You, yeah. <laughs> you, you you have to. The, the point is, you have to read for more than the plot. Mm. And modern readers tend to read for the plot. You have to look at the characters, look at what they're doing, and evaluate them. Mm. Think about. All right, was, was this a good thing to do? Was this the right thing to do? How how should I be thinking about this? What does this tell me about about proper character, about proper behavior? Is this actually an admirable person? He's one of the heroes. Is he really that all that admirable in terms of how he behaves? All of these kinds of questions are things that you can, and that's only one level of the questions, but all these are things you can ask yourself as you're going through Homer um, that they believe taught really important lessons for character. Do we have anything like that in modern that you would say 
this is a modern day Homeric writing? No, I don't. I can't think of anything. There may be some out there, but I can't think of any. So we probably just need to go back and read Homer again. Yeah. Or Dante. The Divine uh, Comedy. Yeah, I've been going the Divine that. Comedy is another one that has got all kinds of really intensely practical lessons in it. Who did you just you tell me to read it? You told me to read Dante and a particular. Yeah, well, I, I mentioned um, uh, Hall and Kurtzman, um, uh, the great courses uh, course on Dante. Um, yeah, uh, that that is very very good at at drawing out what Dante is doing with these character st- sketches that you see through the the, uh, the entire comedy. Do you have any hope that we'll resurrect the medieval mind? No. Um, <laughs> <That's> because, <laughs> because, because you can't go backwards. Okay. I mean. You, you, you can't go backwards. But I think that there is hope that we can resurrect some of the core ideas of it that we've lost. We, 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 can't go, we can't go backwards. We can't believe that the modern world hasn't happened, that the modern world hasn't shaped us. Mm. We, we just can't do that. It's, it's not impossible. Yeah. But we can work to recover some of the most valuable insights that they had in the Middle Ages. And, in, and frankly, we've got insights into the world that they didn't have. It's not right. like it's all been downhill. Right, right, we, right. So what we need to do is try to recover the best of what they had and combine it with the best of what we have. And, and use wisdom and dump and, yeah. the rest. Right, right. So then if you had to give, we're big on books on this side. If you had to say, man, here goes three great books that you need to read, uh, maybe to add some new ammo from the old world that still fits your gun. <laughs> okay. um, the first one, obviously, is the discarded image, C.S. Lewis. Okay. I think that's, okay. Now, I, I got to caution people who've never approached the discarded image. You are not going to understand a lot of it. And mm. the reason you're not going to understand a lot of it is because Lewis uses illustrations from all kinds of literature that you haven't read. Mm-hmm. However, having said that, if you read, even if you don't know the poems that he's citing, you can still read it and listen to his argument and still get his point. Mm-hmm. Just don't get thrown off by the fact that you don't, know the literature okay okay that that's that's an easy trap to fall into okay um that is probably the single best guide to the medieval mind that's out there Mm. and actually i can't think of anything else that even comes close to it so i'll just stick with that one recommendation okay just one yeah Uh, for now we'll just leave it at that that's really good um man that's you, really know, you know, let, let, all right, let, let me give you a couple of other, other uh, okay, ideas. Oh, okay. Read The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Read The Lord of the Rings. Read, read Lewis's um, Ransom Trilogy. Um, that's really interesting. The Ransom one. Trilogy? Yeah, it's sometimes called The Space Trilogy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, Ransom's the main character. Yeah, yeah. So, so re- read that, uh, the Narnia tales, all of those, all of the fiction of these guys they were steeped in the medieval mind, and they actually had a very medieval outlook in yeah. many ways. But they translated it. You know, they were also moderns. They they were not medievals. They were right. moderns. So they they found ways of embodying what they saw as the best of this in an accessible way in to to the modern mind to the modern reader. Um, you know. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we talked before about the importance of story yeah. and, and imagination. I think reading people like Tolkien, like Lewis, like George MacDonald, um, Owen Barfield, ugh, he's tough. That's not stories. Um, re- reading, you know, he, he does, um, he does a literary criticism and things like that. Barfield is really good, but he's difficult. Um, but reading the stories would be a good way of trying to enter into something of the mindset from a modern perspective. So mm. that would be another way of doing it. You'd have to get people, you know, the problem is there are so many I- imitators out there who don't really get it. Right, right. Um, so I would go directly to, to Tolkien uh, to even take on the Silmarillion, um, those kinds of things. That would be another way of beginning to, to get it. Um, especially after you read the discarded image a couple of times, once you've got in your head, what the worldview looked like. You can go to these stories and see the modern adaptation of it. I have that and I haven't opened I've been reading so many other things just trying to catch up kind of on this this um this new idea of thinking. 
and I've realized it's helped me with everything. I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that I want to, the, the most important thing that's happened to me is really in my family. Um, understanding the beauty of hierarchy and making it look beautiful, enjoying it for myself mm-hmm. and taking on the responsibilities that, that come with being made as a man, right? Mm-hmm. Um, having a wife and trying to make those things it, through the joy that I have in, in functioning that way, making them beautiful to my children. And man, if I can actually leave that kind of joy with my children, I feel like I would have won, right? Mm-hmm. And just to leave yeah. that, the beauty of hierarchy there um, and the joy of my wife being submissive to me and me um, being submissive to Christ and then to the offices that we have covenant with and our church and our magistrates and having the beauty of that structure and not bemoaning any of it and operating within that sphere, hopefully my kids see that and be like, wow, that's beautiful. As opposed to seeing, they should, we should be able to see hierarchy and egalitarianism and know which one's beautiful immediately. But my problem has been that we haven't had that kind of beauty a part of our arguments at the drop of a dime. But we should know what's beautiful just instantly looking at it. But we don't have that. And we also have to, again, get getting back to something we said before, we have to make sure that we can also communicate effectively that hierarchy does not mean ontological superiority or That's inferiority. Right. right. That, that you can be ontologically equal, but still in a position of subordination or submission. Right. Um, as Christ was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen. Bro, I, I appreciate you. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely.